today. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about the Passion Week of Jesus. We've been talking about a journey to the cross, and today we're going to be at the cross. And so we actually talked about Palm Sunday. We talked about Jesus entering into uh, Jerusalem a while ago. And so today we're further, further along in the gospel. We're in Mark chapter 15. And so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. And I'm going to pray that God speaks to us, that we wouldn't just learn information today. My prayer, my hope for you is that you would experience the love of Christ as we walk through this passage that sees Jesus nailed to a cross. So let me pray for us. Father, we come before you today, and uh, we don't want to just be learners of your word, and uh, we don't want to just know more information than we knew before we came into this room. We want to know you, and I pray for anybody here who doesn't know you as Savior, that you put that desire in their heart today, and I pray for those that have maybe drifted from you or are in a dry place spiritually, uh, been walking through a difficult season. God, that you would, you would meet with them in these moments that we open up your, your Scripture. And I pray for those that are doubters or skeptics or angry with you, that you would pierce their hearts and show them your love. And I pray for those of us who just need a word of reflect, refreshment or regrounding in the gospel, that you give us that moment. For those that you want to call the next step of faith, God, will you just meet with us? Will you speak to us? Will you change us, please? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, this past week, I was up in my attic. Now, I don't know how often you go up in your attic, but for me, that is not a normal occurrence. That's not like on the weekly things to do list, but I was going through our attic, and I was looking for some pictures of myself with a friend of mine from high school, and as I was going through some of those pictures, I found some other pictures. I have permission to share one of them <laughs> with you today. For my wife and I, when we first met, we met at a Mexican restaurant in Michigan. Here we are working together at that Mexican restaurant. That is the 17-year-old version of Shanna, the 18-year-old version of Scott. And uh, you can make comments and all that kind of business later about why is your hair that tall? <laughs> like, are you trying to be taller? Like, what's happening in those moments? And uh, I've got another picture that I did not ask permission to share. It uh, includes our executive pastor and his wife about 20 years ago. And uh, here it is. That's Pastor John and his wife, Nikki, and my wife and I back in our college days and all the memories that go with that. And while I was digging through the stuff that was in our attic, there's lots of memorabilia, lots of things that were reminders of my past, reminders of my story, and a lot of stuff that was unique to me. I'm sure that'd be true for you if you went up in your attic as well. And there'd be things that are, are rare. They're not necessarily valuable in the sense they have monetary value, but they're valuable to you. There was one box that was up there that had a bunch of stuff that reminded me of my dad. My dad passed away in 2001. If I went to sell those things, I wouldn't get any money for them. But to me, they're incredibly valuable. And I started thinking about how oftentimes value is dictated but how rare something is. You've probably heard this phrase before. There's no place like home. Why is there no place like your home? It's not that your home is necessarily worth more money than all the other homes that are out there, but it's unique. It's unique to you. It's rare. The same as a childbirth is rare. Your wedding day is rare. Your first day of college, it's all unique to you, so it's valuable to you. But if you look at things that have monetary value, rarity also plays into that. Now, there was one box in my attic that at the time I didn't think much about it. It said sports collectibles in it. Now, when I was a little kid, I collected, you know, baseball cards, football cards, basketball cards. I don't, I'm not into that anymore, so I didn't think to myself, hey, what's in there? But as I was doing some research for this message, I thought, what if there's something valuable inside that box? Because every kid, if you ever collected the, you know, bought a little pack of baseball cards, they've got the worst gum in them ever, right? But I ate it anyway, so it was like terrible gum that was in there. And you got this pack of cards, and the likelihood that any of those cards are worth any money someday is like 99.9999% unlikely. Like, it's not going to happen, but you're saying there's a chance. And every kid's fantasy is one of these cards is going to be worth like millions of dollars someday. 
And so I'm not old enough to have some of the most valuable cards that are out there, but I started Googling and I started looking to see what were some of the cards that are out there. And probably the, like the, the card of all the cards that are out there is a Honus Wagner card. From 1909 to 1911, it's a baseball card. He was a really good baseball player. What makes it so valuable is that at the time, there were only between 50 and 200 of them actually printed. They don't know for sure exactly how many were printed. And then obviously there's less than that in circulation now. Now, you can kind of guess in your mind what you think the price of one of these things would be. The prices that I saw on these cards were somewhere between $2.8 million and $3.1 million. Isn't that crazy? But it's valuable who's on the card, when it was made, how old it is, all that stuff, but it's the rarity of it. And you can start looking at other things people collect and see that it's, it's the uniqueness that makes things incredibly valuable. Now, there's some stuff, it's just because it's really high quality, it's really good, it's really big, like diamonds. I started looking at diamonds. I don't know much about diamonds, but there was this one diamond. It was $400 million. It was over 500 carats. Now, I don't know how big that looks in real life, but I can, can you imagine carrying that baby around on a ring? <laughs> hey, look, I can barely. But that wasn't the most valuable diamond. There were some diamonds that went into another category, and the category was priceless. Like, we can't put a price tag on it. One kept in the Louvre in Paris because uh, it's who it's been owned by, the facets that are in it, the color of the diamond, like all the, it was, and it was smaller than the $400 million diamond. There was one in the Tower of London that's kept there. They all have a story. It's what makes them unique and makes them rare, that makes them valuable. And so you can do it with sports cars, whatever the different stuff is. But today we're talking about our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is a one-of-a-kind Savior. The title of today's message is Jesus Is. Do you realize how unique Jesus is? Because there's a lot of saviors out there. You may not have realized that. There's functional saviors. There's false saviors. Sometimes we call them idols. In the Old Testament, you see idols. And sometimes when we think about that, we think, oh, that was just people that weren't intelligent enough to know you shouldn't worship a statue or a little image that you've created with your own hands. But the reality is someday people are going to look back on this generation and go, why were they worshiping that stuff? Money, power, sex. In fact, anything that we put in the place of God is an idol. And so we have in our souls a longing, a hope for something, and we think these other things are going to deliver other than God. And so it could be our reputation, how well we do at work, uh, marriage, a marriage that we hope to have someday, kids, kids that we hope to have someday, some accomplishments, some praise from other people, like all these things that we can put, good things and not good things, that we put in a place, anything we put above God, we've ultimately made an idol, a false savior, something we think is going to deliver, something that only God can deliver. Do you know who Jesus is? Like, think about who Jesus is for a moment. The one and only begotten Son of God. Begotten, not made. The Lord over all creation. Fully God, fully man. Just think about who Jesus is as we've gone through the book of Mark, as you read through the whole scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. I've jotted down a few to help your thinking. Jesus is the Son of God. There is none like him. Jesus is the Word of God in the flesh. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the great I am, as he says multiple times in the Gospels. I am. He is the creator and sustainer. He is the true God, almighty God, great God and Savior, manifest in the flesh. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He's here now. Jesus, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's Redeemer, Rock of Ages, Rose of Sharon, Light of the World, Bread of Life, the Root of Jesse, the True Vine, the Living Water, the Door, the Good Shepherd. He's one of a kind, Amen. He's the Lamb of God, the cornerstone. He's Jehovah provider, stronger than death, stronger than disease, stronger than difficulty, stronger than the enemy. He is, Jesus is creator, alpha, omega, beginning, end, the same yesterday, today, and forever. By him all things were made, nothing is made by anyone that's not made by him. Amen? 
Jesus is the first one over all creation. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the risen one. He is, just in the book of Isaiah, the wonderful counselor, everlasting father, almighty God, prince of peace. Jesus is our peace. Amen? He's there. Do you know him? Those are just some titles. The root of Jesse, the rose of Sharon, the great I am, the bread of life, the living water, the door. We didn't even say the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Who is he to you? To me is my God and my Savior. What about to you? And I'm not asking you today, do you know how to say titles of his name? Could you recite the list that I just gave you? Could you come up with other ones that aren't on that list? He is the resurrection. He is the light. He's the Son of Man. Coming on the clouds, He will return. I'm not asking if you could recite that. Do you know Him? And what we're going to see today as we go to this passage of Scripture in Mark chapter 15 is that as we walk with Jesus to the cross through the book of Mark, Mark reveals to us who Jesus is. And so today's message is Jesus is and he reveals some things about Jesus to us. But my hope for you is not that you leave here just knowing more about Jesus, but that you know Jesus more. So do you know him? Look at Mark chapter 15 with me. What's happened uh, leading up to this is that Jesus has been on this journey to the cross. And we've been looking at it for several weeks in a row. We saw the last Passover, the first communion with him. We saw him come in, Hosanna, Hosanna, and the highest. We saw him last week in the Garden of Gethsemane, tempted beyond any temptation that anyone's ever experienced before. Tempted to the point of sweating drops of blood. If there's any other way, Father, let this cup, the cup of your wrath, depart from me. But there was no other way, and we saw there that he is fully man. Tempted in every way as we're tempted. But he's also fully God, yet was without sin. And then we see him rejected. Rejected by, Mark tells us, one of the twelve, Judas, in his self-serving rejection. Why does he tell us one of the twelve? Because it's one that's close to him. Then rejected by one, the leader in his nation, the high priest, Caiaphas. Then rejected by his closest friend, Peter. And that's where we left off last week. When Jesus' eyes met Peter's eyes as Peter denied him for the third time. And then verse, chapter 15, verse 1. It's about 5.30 in the morning on Friday. Jesus will be dead by 3 p.m., we're going to read through the verses from 5.30 a.m. till 3 p.m. And what happened last week when Jesus was before Caiaphas is that was the Jewish trial. What we're going to read about today is the Roman trial that Jesus has. Caiaphas, the high priest, said that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy because he claimed with his own lips to be the Son of God. For chapter 14, verses 16 and 61, if you don't think Jesus ever said he was the Son of God, there it is. But that's not what they accuse him of. Luke tells us there's three accusations. They lie about the accusations against Jesus because the Jews had no authority to have Jesus killed. They're under Roman authority, and so they've got to go to Pilate, who's the Roman governor, who's the only one that has the authority to execute Jesus. And so they lie, and they say, well, he says he's the king of the Jews. He says, don't pay taxes to Caesar. He's trying to lead a rebellion. Pilate's only interested in one of the the accusations. Look at it in verse, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consolation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate's the Roman governor. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Because if he's saying he's the king and he's leading a rebellion, that's treason and that's punishable by death. Look at how Jesus responds. And he answered him, you've said so. (laughs) Jesus, always in control of the situation. When he says here, 
that you've said so. He's answering in the affirmative. Yes, I'm the king, but not the kind of king that you think of, Pilate. Not the kind of king that comes and rules with military force. I am a king that rules and reigns in the hearts of those who bow their knee to me. Is he your king? He is the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Verse 3, and the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? Now we know from Isaiah, the prophet, he's fulfilling prophecy here by not answering these questions. His life already answers the questions. They can't even get their stories to come together. See how many charges they're bringing against you, Pilate says, but, but Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. And look at this, verses 6 through 15. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? (laughs) For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. See, Pilate wasn't an idiot. Pilate knew that these Jewish leaders had no concern for loyalty to Caesar. It wasn't that they were worried. He knows that it's not because they're concerned about him claiming to be a king. They've got another motive, and he can't find anything wrong with Jesus. Mark makes it really clear. Luke makes it really clear. Read all the gospel accounts, and it's really clear that this guy who's got no affections for Jesus, no loyalty to the Jews, finds no charges with Jesus. He's innocent. For he perceived us out of envy. And then verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? In John's account, John puts from the lips of Pilate, I find no guilt in this man. But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. It's amazing when I read Mark how little Mark actually describes the scourging and the crucifixion and the physical pain that Jesus would experience through that. Because that wasn't the most difficult part. And what we see through this passage is that Mark's highlighting to us the shame, the loneliness, the forsakenness of the cross. And what he's revealing to us are things that are true about Jesus, that Jesus is certain things that we see in this passage. And one of the things that we see, it's by looking through the eyes of a man that's easy to just skip over. His name's Barabbas. And I believe that that Mark highlights this guy because he's trying to show us something about Jesus through Barabbas. And what we see here is that Jesus is the substitute for Barabbas. And and, and here's the truth about who Jesus is. If, this is a huge if, if Jesus is your Savior then Jesus is your substitute. Jesus is our Savior and our substitute. You think about all the false saviors that are out there, all the different things that we can put our hope in, all the different things that are out there, whether it's money, whether it's power, whether it's sex, whether it's your job, whatever the thing is, let me tell you something, none of those things are going to stand between you and God on judgment day and take the wrath of God for you. They may stand there to condemn you, But they're not going to be there to absorb the wrath of God. And that's what Jesus does for you as your substitute. So trying to think of this passage of Scripture through the eyes of this guy Barabbas. There's no doubt this guy's guilty. You go back up in the passage, look at verse 7. Among them there's a rebel, and the rebel's in prison, so there's different guys in prison here. 
and committed murder. What does Rome do? They're known for gruesomely killing people that rebel against Rome to send the message to everybody else, don't do this. Here they are. It's the Passover. There's all these people there that aren't normally there. In Jerusalem, Pilate's not even normally there. Pilate's only there to make sure there aren't any problems. Now he's got a problem brought before him. He just wants this thing to go away. There's this guy, his name's Barabbas. He's actually, ironically, guilty of the crime they're trying to accuse Jesus of. Rebelling against the government. Insurrection. And not only that, but notice here, murder. Jesus is going to be murdered. He didn't commit murder. In fact, Jesus gave life. Whether it's you're talking about Jairus' daughter, raises her from the dead. Lazarus raises him from the dead. It's the opposite of murder, what Jesus has done. See, these two are a study in contrast. Barabbas, clearly guilty. Jesus, clearly innocent. You read every account, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and it's over and over again. He's innocent. He's innocent. You look at his life. You look at his teaching. No one ever denies the miracles, not even his enemies, not demons. Nobody denies the miracles that Jesus is doing, not even the chief priests and the elders, the teachers of the law that want him dead. They've got to come up with false accusations. In fact, Pilate says in John chapter 18, verses 38 and 39, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I shall release one man for you at the Passover. So... Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And then they chant, no, Barabbas. We want Barabbas. See, to Pilate, this was a no-brainer. He thought this was his way out of this situation. One guy clearly guilty, another guy clearly innocent. So let me see. I'm going to give you a non-choice choice. Should you let the guy that one week ago you were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Or this guy who we all know is a murderer, a rebellion against Rome. Who do you think, the murderer or the innocent guy? And they ask for the murderer. And Pilate wants out of this. Even his wife, we, we read in another gospel account that his wife sent him a message that I've been troubled in a dream about this man. Leave, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Hey, husbands, listen to your wives. Pilate's at a crossroads here and he doesn't even realize it. And so he wants to slip back into passivity, but he can't, he can't knowingly take this innocent guy and put him on. So he, he then says, well, I'll release two people is the idea that's here. When he says, what do you want me to do with this guy? Like, well, all right, you want Barabbas? We'll let Barabbas go. That's the custom. We're going to honor the custom. But what about this guy? And then they chant, crucify him. So try and imagine this situation from Barabbas' perspective. We believe that Barabbas was kept in a prison about 300 yards away from where this trial was taking place. And so you think about how far that is. I don't know if you've ever been to a sporting event before, and have you ever been to a sporting event and you left early and then something happened as you were walking out? <laughs> you don't have to confess. There are other sports fans that would be like, that is heresy. You can't leave early. Or if you just even get up to go to the bathroom or buy some popcorn or whatever it is, and you hear the crowd cheer. You don't know what happened. You know something happened. Now, if that crowd chants something, you can hear what they're saying. USA, or whatever the thing they're chanting. But you can't hear the small talk. You can't hear an individual talking. Barabbas is about 300 yards away. Pilate comes out and he says, hey, well, there's a custom. We're supposed to release one guy. Who do you want us to release? And the crowd chants, Barabbas, Barabbas. And then he doesn't hear anything. He gets silent. What do you want me to do with the one that you call king of the Jews? Crucify him. Crucify him. He says, why? What has he done? They don't answer. They just say it even louder. Crucify him. Crucify him. Bloodthirsty crowd. 
Now, you're Barabbas. You're 300 yards away. You're in your prison cell, in chains. And all you hear is your name being chanted. Now, if your name's being chanted, I think it's going to get your attention. Barabbas, you know, what, what? Gets quiet. Crucify him. Crucifixion is the worst death known to man. People who died of crucifixion didn't die from being beaten, didn't die from being nailed to a cross, didn't die from exposure to the sun. They usually died of dehydration, exhaustion, asphyxiation. They just couldn't breathe anymore. They got so tired, they couldn't lift themselves up, so their diaphragm got shut down. They go unconscious, pass out, and die. After being exposed to this, birds eating their flesh, like all, just awful. People went insane. Mark doesn't talk about any of that stuff. Barabbas had seen it. Barabbas knew what was in store. So imagine being Barabbas, you hear your name chanted, Barabbas, Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. And then you hear that prison guard as his feet walk down the cell towards your cell. What do you think is going to happen? They open your cell and they take you out and then they take the chains off and they say, you're free to go. And do you know what happens at that moment? The guilty is declared innocent while the innocent is declared guilty. That is the gospel. Mark intends for us, as we see this story, to see Barabbas and go, that's me. Do you know why? Because you're guilty. And the guilty is declared innocent, while the innocent, Jesus Christ, is condemned as guilty. And so try and imagine what it must have, can you even think, can you even imagine what it must have been like for Barabbas to come out of there? And many scholars believe that the two th- the people that are uh, the robbers, thieves, we oftentimes call them, that are next to Jesus on the cross, those were Barabbas' friends. So what do you think it was like for Barabbas to see Jesus and go, literally, that was my cross. Those are my friends. You've got to ask yourself the question, who is that guy? And then we don't know what Barabbas does. Does he go back into his sin? Does he, go, does he go and investigate the life of Jesus? Does he come to the conclusion, that guy was innocent, and he died in my place. Like, I was guilty. I committed murder. Everybody knew. In fact, Matthew tells us that he's a notorious criminal. Basically, Barabbas was a terrorist, and he killed people in rebellion against the government. Everyone knew he's guilty, but he's declared innocent because an innocent man is declared guilty. Can you even imagine what that would be like? I read a story this week, uh, back at looking through some of the stuff from the, just the terrible stuff that happened in the Holocaust. And there was a, a story of one of the prison, prison camps. It was a labor camp, a slave camp, a concentration camp in Germany. I think when Germany had taken over some, some part of uh, Poland. And there was this Polish priest. His name was Father Colby. And there were nine men that were condemned to die. And the reason why they were condemned to die was because someone else had escaped the camp. And so it was arbitrary that these nine men even got picked. And Father Colby saw it happening, and he said, I'll die in the place of that guy. And he picked a guy. The concentration camp, one of the commanders that was there was kind of startled by the whole thing, but he let it happen. He said, okay, that guy out, you're in. And they marched him to execution, and they told him to take their clothes off. Father Colby said, it's appropriate that I would die and suffer naked. That's how my Savior was crucified. What was it like to be the guy who watched Father Colby take your place? What must that have been like? Can you even imagine? I hope so, because that's what Jesus did for you. That was not just Barabbas' cross. That was your cross. You're guilty. You say, well, no, 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 Scott. But Barabbas, I'm not a murderer. <laughs> Let me read you what the Bible says about your sin. In James chapter 2 and verse 10, it says this, forever keeps the whole law. Is that you? Probably not. We all sin. 
We all break it, but we judge how big our sins are. Let me ask you, have you ever lied? Don't answer. I'll make you more guilty. You ever lust? You ever covet? Jesus says if you lust, you're an adulterer. If you lie, you're a liar. Do you ever covet? That's how Paul said. Paul said, I was faultless in keeping the law, but then there was covetousness. Do you ever want something that's not yours that belongs to someone else? Honus Wagner baseball card? I don't know what it is. I wasn't trying to make you sin, but it's it. James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become accountable for all of it. That was your cross. Jesus was innocent. You're guilty. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, Jesus knew he would do this. He says this, Surely he has borne our griefs. Notice the word our through this passage. And carried our sorrows. He was a man of sorrow. It was our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. We said earlier that he is our peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. He became sin, your sin, who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Do you know what that is? That's the innocent being declared guilty so the guilty could be declared innocent. That's for you. That's him being our substitute and our Savior. No other Savior does that. Money's not going to do that for you. Sex isn't going to do that for you. Your job's not going to do that for you. Power's not going to do that for you. Whatever anybody, how many attaboys do you need to, for it to be satisfying? Just one more. <laughs> how much money? Just a little bit more. How much success? Uh, the ladder just keeps getting a little bit taller. In that temporary satisfaction, sin is fun and for a moment or no one would do it. But it's fleeting. And we take good things and we make them the ultimate thing and we turn good things that God created for us into sin false saviors. Jesus is a real savior. Jesus is our substitute. He is our savior. But how does that even happen? We'll keep reading in the passage that Jesus is forsaken so that we could be forgiven. Jesus is the forsaken one. Jesus is forsaken so you and I could be forgiven. What we read next of Jesus on the cross and the hours that he's going to spend being tortured on the cross, all of it is dark. And so we're going to come next week to the resurrection. He is risen. Amen? But what we're about to read is dark. This is what we celebrate on Friday. It says here that Pilate had Jesus scourged. Now, that's an easy statement in verse 15 just to read past. That's the setting for what we're about to read as he's sentenced to be crucified. John shows us, and you read John uh, chapter 19, the first several verses in there, that what Pilate did is he had him scourged, thinking he'd be so bloodied and so beaten, and he'll bring him back before the crowd, and maybe they'll have pity on him, but they don't. The scourging was awful. The scourging was a Roman scourging, not a Jewish scourging. A Jewish scourging, there's a limit to how many lashes you can give someone when you're flogging them. Roman, no limit. Many people died. This alone which is just like the beginning of Jesus' torture, this alone is a fatal torture. And so, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ. It's gruesome. What they would do is they would take Jesus, they would extend his hands out. We don't know if it's above his head or down on the ground over a pillar to stretch the skin on his back out. And then someone would come with a, a weapon that was a wood handle, and on it were leather strips. And, and they wouldn't just lash him with that. At the end of the leather strips, there were pieces of bone, metal, wood, hooks, so that when you slash the person over the back, it would hook into their side, and you could tear the flesh off their back. 
Josephus says that people, you could see their intestines, their bones. Many people died. It was meant to inflict the most pain possible. At the end of this, Jesus' back would be unrecognizable as a human back. It'd be just shredded tissue. And then they'd send him to be crucified. His flogging was probably so bad, it was customary that when someone was crucified, that on their way to being crucified, they would flog someone. They didn't do that to Jesus. He probably lost so much blood, that's why he couldn't carry his own cross. Now remember that, and then also, betrayed by one of the twelve, Mark told us. Why you, got, you don't have to tell us Judas is one of the twelve. No, I want you to realize what he's feeling, what he's experiencing. He was one of his closest. And Caiaphas, delivered to the Jews, his people. Jesus is Jewish. His closest friend, Peter, denies him. Even though he said he'd never deny him. I'll never de- denies him. But none of that's the worst. The worst is what happens between him and the Father. And what Mark does in this passage is like a photographer. When they don't want you to see a bunch of the other stuff, it's a good stuff. It might be beautiful flowers, could be wonderful people, but I want you to focus in on the image I'm showing you. Mark doesn't tell us about all the words that Jesus says from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Today you'll be with me in paradise. It is finished. He only gives us one statement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wants us to see the forsakenness of Jesus. So with that in mind, as I read these words, see if you can feel the weight of what's happening here. He delivered him to be crucified. In verse 16, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And so his back is shredded. And they put this cloak on him. And they twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. You can read on your own Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. This is the curse being placed on Jesus. And they began to salute him. And they had a saying, Hail Caesar, but here they're mocking him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. It's all mockery. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak. Probably had long enough so that the, the back began to stick to the cloth and dry to the cloth. And they ripped it back off and they put his own clothes on him. And they let him out to be crucified. And he couldn't even carry his own cross, we know. And verse 21 says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander Rufus, to carry his cross, probably coming there to celebrate the Passover. Little did he know he would meet the Passover lamb. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. He's going to take on the full pain of the cross. In verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And the the people that are casting lots for his clothes is probably his execution team, which would be a four-man execution team, led by a guy we're going to meet later in verse 39. And it was the third hour. The third hour is about 9 a.m. when they crucified him. And the inscription, the charge against him, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. All these people mocking him, people that he's dying for. And what you see here is the Lamb of God. See, the Lamb is a picture of meekness. A Lamb, silent before the shearer. His not responding, he's fulfilling prophecy. What he's showing us here, though, is ultimate submission. Because you've got to think about who this is. He's not only the Lamb of God, he's also the Lion of Judah. Amen? Think about what Jesus could have done in this moment. 
the lion of Judah, while the lamb is a picture of meekness, the lion is a picture of majesty. The lion is a predator. The lion can destroy. The lion will eat a lamb. The lion could devour. It's a picture of his strength. And so here we're seeing a picture of his submission. We earlier in the book of Mark saw his strength. We've got a picture right over here that Jesus is stronger. From when we did our Jesus is stronger series, we saw that Jesus is stronger than death. He can defeat death. He can overcome this. He can defeat disease. We saw him calm the storm, which is the word of his mouth. Any difficulty in our lives overpowers the demons, is stronger than the enemy. He's got a power like this world's never seen before. But the restraint here, do you remember the transfiguration when his glory shines forth and he allows his disciples to get a glimpse of it? Well, we know in Timothy it says that he dwells in unapproachable light. We couldn't even go into his presence. So I was talking with a friend the other day about when he was washing the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. I said, how hard was it when he's washing the disciples' feet and he gets to Judas? What love and compassion and restraint because if I was Jesus and I had the ability of Jesus, you'd want to like, I'd want to let my glory shine forth and melt his face off. In this moment, while he's being mocked with the word of his mouth, he could wipe them all out. Oh, Father, they don't know grace, compassion, and submission to the Father here. While he's the Lion of Judah, here we see him as the Lamb of God. His surrender and submission is even more glorious when you understand his strength and his majesty. So, look at what they say to him. You could rebuild the temple and save yourself. Come down from the cross, verse 30. Look at verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. The irony of this statement, it's because he doesn't save himself that he can save others. He said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, I didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. If he comes down from the cross, we don't have Easter. The temptation here is the same temptation we saw back in the desert, the same temptation we saw in the garden. It's him being tempted to be a king without a cross. And he can, but he doesn't. So he could save you. Verse 32, let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Now there are some people, there are some people even here that attend this church and say, if God just did this, then I'd believe in him. Let me tell you the answer to that. No, you wouldn't. They wouldn't. You're wanting God to perform. You want to be God. You want him to perform tricks for you. You want him to perform miracles for you, that you'd be the sovereign, that you'd be in control. Then he's your creation. Do you know what that makes him? An idol. They've seen enough. There's been enough evidence. They won't believe. Their hearts are hardened. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Those who are known to be guilty are mocking him. And when the sixth hour had come, this is, a dark, this is literally a dark moment. He's been tortured and suffering for three hours at this point. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for three hours. So I told you that the third hour is 9 a.m. The sixth hour is noon. Total darkness over the earth at noon. That's not normal. They're in Jerusalem, not Alaska. This darkness is a picture of God's judgment. Back in the book of Exodus, we see that, that God's battling, uh, the, he's not really battling because it's not a struggle for him, but he's, he's demonstrating his power, his strength over the false gods of Egypt. And he sends multiple plagues. The ninth plague is the plague of darkness. If you've ever experienced real darkness, with no city lights, no star lights, it's isolation. 
It's punishment. We know that the last plague was the plague of the firstborn, but there was a Passover, a substitute. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Here he's experiencing the judgment of God. When darkness covers the earth, it's Jesus experiencing the judgment of God for the next three hours. Do you know what he's experiencing on the cross? He's experiencing hell. It's hell on the cross. Hell is separation from God. The penalty for our sins is death, separation from God. What he's experiencing here is separation from God. Look what he says in verse 34. And at the ninth hour, that's three hours later, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You feel the weight of that. Forsaken by his Father? It's the only prayer that Jesus prays in the Bible where he doesn't call God Father. Look at it again. My God, my, still personal, my God, my God. And then he asks this question, why? Now, this isn't a theological question for Jesus. He knows the answer, why? There's multiple answers. He's talked about the answers in his teaching. This is desperation. This is this desolate moment. He is one with the Father still, in essence, still part of the Trinity, still fully God. But there's a broken fellowship here. Jesus never experienced that before. He knew it would happen. Now he's experiencing it happening. He's experiencing forsakenness, so you could not know experience forgiveness. See, at this moment, he has this question, why? Well, we know why. There's multiple answers. For the glory of God, it's one of the answers. Because he always submits and does the Father's will, it's one of the answers. For you and for me is one of the answers. He endured the cross, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. For the joy, the shame of the cross, for the joy set before him, which is you. That's why What keeps him on the cross? His love for you, his surrender to his Father's will, his desire for God's glory, his desire to be with the Father again. But in this moment, forsakenness, hell on the cross for three hours. And he cries out. Because in this moment, we know that Judas is responsible for his rejection. We know that Peter is responsible. There's human responsibility, but God was sovereign over that. In this moment, it becomes reality. Father, this was your plan. You had me betrayed by Judas. You had me denied by Peter. You led me to this cross through the scourging, the mockery, all of this. this is, Father, this was your plan. This is your cup that I'm drinking. Why? Why are we separated? He knows the answer. It's this desperation of the moment of being forsaken. And it's for you. He's forsaken so that you and I could be forgiven. And so let me ask you this question. Are you? Not do you know about forgiveness. I'm not asking if you can quote 1 John 1, 9. If we confess with our mouths, He is faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I'm not asking if you know that. I'm not asking if you ever said you're sorry for your sins. Do you see what your sins really are? They break fellowship with Him. It's what nailed him to the cross. He's on the cross because of your lying, because of your adultery, because of your anger, because of your pride, because of your self-reliance, because of your trust, because of your addictions, because of, your, because of what I've done, because of what you've done. That's why he's on the cross. Confession is that. And to experience the cleansing that's talked about in 1 John 9, it's like being Barabbas, where you come out and you know you're guilty, but you see the one who's on your cross, and you're free to go. Now, Romans 8.1. Have you experienced Romans 8.1? Now, after the cross of Jesus Christ, now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Are you in Christ? 
That doesn't mean did you grow up in the South. That doesn't mean did you go to church your whole life. That doesn't mean have you prayed some prayer. That means have you experienced, not just know about, experienced the love of Christ. Have you experienced the forgiveness of Christ? He's putting it on display right here. Jesus is forsaken so you can be forgiven. Not know about forgiveness, be forgiven. But this next one, the next one gets me, that Jesus is the Lord of life change. Amen? Jesus is the Lord of life. He is your substitute. If he's your savior, he is forsaken so you can be forgiven, but he is the Lord of life change. Look at these text verses. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. They're mocking him, by the way. They're not confused. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. Remember, many people would die of dehydration, the temptation to take this. Put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will go. Let's make this go a little bit longer. They're torturing him. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Don't miss this. Verse 37 is when he dies. Don't miss that. It's a dark moment. But he dies unlike other people who are crucified die. Remember I told you, dehydration, asphyxiation, they basically get exhausted. People go unconscious and they stop breathing. He cries out with a loud cry. One commentator I read said, this is a demonstration of superhuman strength. I think what's happening here is that Jesus is again showing us, no one takes my life. I've decided. It is finished. Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, many of us are not familiar with what this curtain is. Tim Keller says, hey, reminder, this is is as thick as a wall. And he goes on and he talks about what that curtain was. The, cu- the curtain separated man from God. The curtain was there to separate people from the Holy of Holies. There was one day when the holiest man from the holiest nation could go in on the holiest day and offer sacrifices for the nation in the Holy of Holies. One day, holiest day. One man, holiest man. From the holiest nation to go into the Holy of Holies. The, temple, the curtain's torn. Now you and I get to go in. That's why we can pray directly to God. We don't need a priest. That's why there's no more sacrifices. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. We don't need to sacrifice lambs, goats, bulls, any of that stuff anymore because Jesus was sacrificed on the cross for you, for me. But then this next verse is the one, probably my favorite in the whole passage. And when the centurion who stood facing him, now who is this guy? This is the guy that was the leader of the four-man execution squad. This guy may have been there when Pilate was grilling Jesus about whether he's a king. When he says statements that we didn't read in Mark's account, but you go to to John's and Pilate says, what is truth? He doesn't want anything to do with this. And Pilate watches how Jesus responds the whole time, or this this man was probably there watching how Jesus responded the whole time. Was there, certainly, when Jesus was scourged. We don't know if this guy scourged him himself. Saw Jesus not able to carry his cross. Saw Jesus being mocked, was there and mocked him. May have put the crown of thorns on his head. Mocking him when the robes put on, the robes pulled off, said, Hail, King of the Jews. He was there for all that, was part of that. He's certainly one of the guys that's casting lots for Jesus' clothes. He's a centurion. He's a ruler. He's directly accountable to Pilate. He's seen a lot of people die in a lot of different ways. But look what he says here. A centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, before I read this next line, you've got to know this about a centurion. Centurions swore allegiance to Caesar. And there was emperor worship back then in Rome. And so you believed 
that your emperor was divine. In fact, you called him the son of the divine, the son of God. What I'm about to read to you is a change of allegiance. And the lead executioner stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, maybe that loud cry that he gave, or maybe it was just the, way, the darkness that covered the earth. Maybe it was the earthquake that happened that we don't read about in this account, but we've seen another gospel account. Well, he saw the way that Jesus died. This guy had seen a lot of people die. There was something different about the way that Jesus died. And he, as he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This guy's changing allegiance. No longer Caesar Lord, but Jesus is the Son of God. Now, if we've been reading the book of Mark, this has been the theme all through the whole book. And so the book starts in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. This is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We see at his baptism, God the Father, this is my Son. We see at the transfiguration, again, this voice from the cloud, God the Father, this is my Son, listen to him. We saw Jesus himself say last week in Mark chapter 14, verses 16 and 61, are you the Christ? I am. He's saying he is the Son of God. But now, not from the Jewish leaders, but from his own executioner, a Roman centurion, this guy's the Son of God. He's the Lord of life change. Let me tell you something. If Jesus can convert his own executioner, now with his words, the way that he dies, I don't know who you're praying will come to know Christ, but there's hope. If, he, if this guy can be changed, there's, this is the guy. He's there when they're nailed. It's his team. Might have been him nailing Jesus to the cross. He says, this man, not Caesar, is the son of God. Do you realize he's putting his life on the line saying this statement? And you know what it begs the question of? Who do you say that he is? If this executioner says he's the son of God, who do you say that he is? Is he your substitute? Was he forsaken so you could experience forgiveness? And is he the Lord of life change in your life? Because we read these statements earlier. I mean, Jesus is. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Emmanuel, God with us, rock of ages, rose of Sharon, light of the world, bread of life, root of Jesse, true vine, living water, the door, the good shepherd. He is. Who do you? Is he your God? Is he your Savior? Or is he just a good man that's out there that if he can help me out in some situation, I'll use him? Who is he to you? Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and we bow our hearts before you because you, will, you are the king. We are not. And I pray, God, right now, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you as Savior, that you would overwhelm them with guilt for their sin, that you would convict their hearts, that they would realize they might not be as bad as someone else or whatever temptations they have to think in this moment, but that you would show them how dark their sin is because it nailed you to a cross. And God, I pray that you would overwhelm them with how great your forgiveness is because you can forgive even that. And that you would show them your forgiveness. They would experience your forgiveness. They would call upon you to be Lord. And Father God, I, I pray on behalf of those that are believers that are here today that you would have us love you more today than we loved you yesterday. That you'd have us take whatever the next step in our faith journey with you is, whatever commitments you want us to make, whatever repentance you want us to experience, I pray that it would happen in this moment, that you would speak to our hearts, you would change us. Don't let us leave here being the same. Don't let us leave here just knowing more information that only makes us more accountable. Help us to know you more. We don't want to just know more, we want to know more of you. 
God, will you please speak to our hearts? If you need a moment to repent, you can do that. You don't have to just pray what I'm praying. You pray to the Lord as God lays on your heart in this moment. If you need to pray to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible tells you how to do that. You acknowledge your sin before Him. You believe that He died on the cross for your sins. Do you believe that what we'll talk about next week, that He rose from the dead, He defeats death. He defeats the cross. If you believe that's true and you confess with your mouth that He's Lord, that means that He'll be in charge of your life, then just pray and tell Him that right now. And if you do that, you can mark on that card that was mentioned for guests earlier that you trusted Jesus as your Savior. You can drop it in the offering box or take it to the tent or bring it up to me, whatever you want to do. I'll be out in the cafeteria after the service. I'd love to meet you. There'll be prayer counselors that'll be at the back of the room. They're there for you or for anybody here that has any burden. And Father, there are some here that came here today with heavy hearts, difficult things happening in their life. They need words of hope, and we're talking about your death. Father, we know what happens next. We know that you give life. And it was by not saving yourself that you can save us. God, help our hearts rejoice in that. You were the man of sorrows, our sorrow. You became sin, our iniquities crushed you. Our transgressions wounded you. Thank you for being our substitute. Thank you for being our Savior. We love you and we want to love you more. Help us to know you more. The only reason we wouldn't love him is if we didn't know him. My God, I pray that we would know you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.